Good morning. A couple of weeks ago I was just telling you about what a horrible year that Mike and I had had and um, we had no choice but to sell our house so we sold that in October and we moved into a rental in the same month and it wasn't until we got settled down that the Holy Spirit really started to speak to me because I kept saying, why, you know, why is this happening? And so that, from that time onwards, I would just hear the voice of God within my spirit about different things. And then one morning I got up, it was about half past one in the morning, and he just started telling me these things. So I got a pen and I started writing and writing and writing. And so that basically forms the basis of this message this morning. The topic is perseverance. And the scripture in James 1 verse 2 to 5 forms the basis of this message. It reads, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. Notice that it says here, whenever you face trials. It's not a matter of if. Trials are inevitable. And perseverance is not just passive waiting, but it's active endurance. It isn't so much the quality that helps us to wait for the doctor in the doctor's surgery. Rather, it's the kind of quality that we need to finish a marathon. For a start, James tells us to actively seek wisdom. And this wisdom from God equips us to endure our trials and troubles. We face troubles of all different kinds. The Bible tells us that man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly outward. But James is telling us that there's a purpose for our trials and troubles. The purpose is to test our faith so that we may develop perseverance And the purpose of perseverance is to bring us to spiritual maturity. Trials don't produce faith, but when trials are received with faith, it produces perseverance. In Romans 5, verse 3 and 4, the Apostle Paul tells us, we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. Notice that we don't rejoice because of our suffering, but we rejoice in our suffering. Paul doesn't recommend a morbid view of life, but a joyous and triumphant one. So what is perseverance? The dictionary defines perseverance as a steady persistence in adhering to a course of action or belief or a purpose, steadfastness in purpose in spite of difficulties, obstacles or discouragement. 
What comes to your mind when you hear the word perseverance? For me, it brings to mind a mental image of two men. One man is a man of the world and the other is a man of God. But both men are amazing examples of what it means to persevere. I want to spend more time discussing the godly man um, so that we can draw some lessons from him. But firstly, let me tell you the story of Cliff Young. Cliff Young was an Australian potato farmer and an athlete from Victoria, and he's best known for his unexpected win in the inaugural Sydney to Melbourne ultramarathon in 1983, and he was 61 years of age. So Cliff rolls up in his overalls and work boots to start the marathon without his dentures. He said afterwards they rattled too much. (laughs) He ran a slow, steady pace and trailed the pack by a large margin at the end of the first day. While the other competitors stopped to sleep for six hours, Cliff just kept on running. He ran continuously for five days, taking the lead the first night and eventually winning by 10 hours. Before running the race, he told the press that he had previously practised for this by running two to three days chasing sheep in his gumboots. The marathon took him five days, 15 hours and four minutes, and that was almost two days faster than any previous record run for that, uh, for that time, for that area. And Cliff and, and the five other competitors who finished the race, they all broke this record. And Cliff was given a, a prize of $10,000, and he didn't even know that there was a prize. That's probably about $40,000 today. So what he did, he said, well, I feel bad about taking this money because um, all the other five guys worked just as hard as I I did, so he divided the money between the other five and didn't keep any for himself. And in 1984, he was awarded the Medal of the Order of Australia for long-distance running. Can you imagine five days continuously running at the age of 61? What an amazing example of perseverance. And it's the seeming impossibility of such perseverance that makes it so amazing. So let's turn our attention to the godly man for another example of perseverance. And of course we're talking about Job. Job has often been portrayed by earlier theologians as the suffering servant I remember years ago, always reading about Job, he always intrigued me, and it was always, oh, the suffering Job, suffering servant. But modern theologians, while recognising the suffering, see Job more as a man of perseverance. What do we know of Job? Well, he was a godly man. There was no one else like him. He was a man of well-deserved prosperity. He was a good good man, a gentleman. He was extremely wealthy and he was a fine husband and a good loving father. And then in a quick and brutal sweep of back-to-back disasters, Job's left reduced to a mass of brokenness and grief. 
the extraordinary accumulation of disasters that fell upon him would do us all in today. Job is left penniless, homeless, helpless and childless. He's lost everything but his wife and life. This discussion has God pointing, or um, go back one step here. Job is totally unaware of any previous discussion between God and Satan. And this discussion has God pointing out to Satan that there is no man on earth like Job, that he is blameless and God-fearing. So Satan challenges God and says, okay, if you take everything away from him, he's going to curse you to your face. So God says to Satan, okay, you can do everything's in your hands, but you can't touch his life. So here's Job standing beside the ten graves, freshly dug graves for his now dead children. His wife standing beside him weeping and she's just heard Job say, whether our God gives to us or whether he takes everything away from us, we will follow him. Pause and think about their grief. And remember that Job's done nothing wrong to deserve this unbearable pain. And misery and mystery are then added to the insult and injury of Job's real-life disasters. As he sits there scraping his boils that have covered his whole body and they've been erupting pus, he's scraping it all off and his body is swirled with a fever and he's got this crazy itch that just won't stop. And then he looks into the faces of his three friends and they just sit there and stare at Job for seven days and seven nights. Just imagine. First they don't recognise him and that's because his body's so swollen and the sight of it all just causes his friends to be at a loss for words. But unfortunately the friends don't remain silent. When they finally speak, they have nothing to say but blame, accusation and insult. Basically what they're saying, Job, you're getting what you deserve. They shape their harsh remarks in more uh, philosophical terms, but nonetheless they were unmerciful and his pain only deepened. And then his misery turns to mystery with God's silence. The words of his friends are unbearable, but the silence from God is just downright intolerable. And it's not until the 38th chapter of Job that God actually breaks his silence. However long that was, if it was only just a few months, try and imagine you've become the object of your so-called friends' accusations and the heavens are as brass as you try and ask God what's happening. God just remains mute. Nothing comes to you by the way of comfort. It's all so unfair, you've done nothing wrong. Just imagine it. Job's just a man. He's not Superman. He's not um, a man in an angel's body. He's just a man. The bottom of Job's life's just dropped out. Seemingly senseless tragedy invades a person who just doesn't deserve it. When bad things happen, we are always left with that haunting word, Why? Why me? Why us? Why that? Why now? Job didn't ask why. His response can be found in Job 
1, verse 20 to 22. Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. The verse goes on to say, In all this Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Job fell to the ground. For me, this shows the heroism of Job's perseverance. He doesn't wallow and wail, he worships. This is a good place to consider a statement that Paul wrote to his young friend Timothy. It's found in 1 Timothy 6, verse 7 and 8. For we have brought nothing into this world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. In the meantime, we must realise that everything we have is just online. Now, there came a time when all of this overwhelmed Mrs Job. She came to Job and said, Husband, Job, why don't you just curse God and die? Job's response is magnificent. You speak as one of the foolish women speak. He went further than telling her off. He asked her this great question, Shall we accept good from God and not adversity? Our God has no obligation to explain himself. We understand our God is full of compassion, but his plan is beyond our comprehension. Isaiah 55 verse 8 and 9 reads, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And so we say with Job, O God, I trust you. I don't know why I'm going through this. If there's something I can learn from this, wonderful. If there's something somebody else can learn, great. Just get me through it. Just hold me close. Deepen me. Change me. When we persevere, like Job, we change from being just mere sufferers to wise counsellors and valuable comforters. We need to understand that God's wonderful plan for our lives is wonderful from his perspective, not ours. To us, wonderful means to be comfortable, healthy, bills paid, no debt, happily married with two children who are very well behaved, a fulfilling, well-paid job, the anticipation of nothing but blessing and success and prosperity forever and ever. That's wonderful to us. But God's wonderful plan is not like that. Job brings us back to reality, God's reality. Job asks, Why did I not die at birth, come from the womb and just expire? Job's responses here make us a bit uneasy. He's basically saying, I'm not at peace, I'm not at rest, I'm in turmoil. So we see the dark side of Job's life that is as real as any of our lives are today. But the difference is this. Job lets it all out. It's important not to deny the pain we feel in our troubles. 
Sadly, when Christians feel pain, they pretend they don't. They base their refusal to acknowledge the pain on Jesus' instruction that says, do not let your hearts be troubled. They reason this way. If we admit our pain, then we're going against what Jesus told us to do. What did Jesus really mean when he said, do not let your hearts be troubled? Was he really telling us that we shouldn't be feeling any pain? Are we going to go about pretending to ourselves that we're not in pain when in reality we are? These are important points. If we are not honest with ourselves about our pain, we get stuck in a place where we simply can't move on. And also this, the danger is also that when we can run from our pain The danger is also that we can run from our pain to things that are even more painful in the long run. Christian counsellor Larry Crabb says this, we Christians are often practising Buddhists because we kill desire to avoid pain and then wonder why we don't enjoy God. Jesus tells us that the way to handle pain is to discover your built-in desire for God and then deepen it by longing to know him in all his fullness. When we do this, then everything that happens to us, whether it's good or bad, becomes redemptive and it moves us towards God. Don't waste pain. Unless pain is working to some end, it breaks us by its meaninglessness. Jeremiah Jeremiah tells us pagans waste their pain. And the point that Jeremiah is really making here is that those who live without God don't know what to do with their pain and so they waste it. Their pain ends in mere meaningless suffering and it gets them nowhere. One of the biggest problems psychologists have to deal with is the problem of meaninglessness. But Christians have an advantage. They belong to a God who has meaning for everything. We are not pagans and we must learn to make our pains productive by bringing them to God so that he can help in making them redemptive. Only when we see redemption in pain can we be released from it. Meaningless pain is paralysing. Dr Stanley Jones says, Pain can be taken up into the purposes of God and transformed into finer character, greater tenderness and more general usefulness. We've deviated a little from Job's story. We now reach the part in Job's story where the man has reached the end of his rope. I'm sure we'll probably never understand how terrible things were for Job. But we do understand what it feels like to reach the end of our rope, especially when trouble comes and persists. And even if we can't understand Job's terrible circumstances, there are three practical statements to identify with Job's struggle. Firstly, there are days too dark for the sufferer to see. Two, there are experiences too extreme for the hurting to have hope. When a person drops so low low due to their inner pain, it's as if all hope is lost. And that's where Job's at. It's why he admits his lack of peace 
his unrest and his turmoil. An example of people who are reaching this point at the moment are those people in bushfires. It's that This covers them exactly. They're, these experiences are just too extreme at the moment for these people to have hope, whether they're Christians or not. I'll share this with you, not to say, oh, you know, I can identify with them, but just to, to show you that there are experiences that become extreme and, it, and you don't feel like there is any hope. On Ash Wednesday, Mike and I lived on Yarraby Road at Greenhill, which was the worst hit street in the whole of Australia on Ash Wednesday. 27 houses were burnt down in our street and five people died. My children and I just saw the flames coming from across Mount Lofty. We lived up at Greenhill, which is just at the top of Burnside, up in the green, up Greenhill Road. It's a beautiful spot. And my neighbour said, "Well, he pulled down the curtains. Get going!" I said, "Oh, Amanda, you know, it's this. It's not coming. It's way over at Glen Osmond. It's not going to come." She said, "You better look through your window." And the flames were just at the beginning of our block. So we ran, put the kids in the car. I tried to straighten up my car. Our driveway was like that and I had to back up. I don't know how I did it. I still have a nightmare about that. And then we went to the CFS shed. That was the only place we could go. And Mike was the CFS officer in charge. I'd never met Mike until the Ash Wednesday. And he had a cement truck pour water all around this, the, the, the shed to save us. And um, at one point, though, before he did that, I was worried about somebody. So I left the children with my neighbour in the shed and I walked down the road. And the flames just came from nowhere. And this this young man on a motorbike grabbed me and put me on the motorbike and took me back to the CFS shed. And we were in there for probably 18 hours altogether. And... The thing is, and this is this is what I want to say, is that these experiences are so extreme. And I went, I was being treated by a psychiatrist for almost thirteen years for post-traumatic stress disorder. And eventually, I got well because they put me in a mental hospital for five weeks and really kind of talked talked me through it. And, and from that time on, I was so much better. But for a long time, I didn't even know that I had post-traumatic stress disorder. But these experiences in all of our lives, we've, we've all got some things that are major, that we just have time. These experiences, they take time. They're not instant ways to get us to a better place. And we need to recognise that. And we can identify with Job in that. That's how he was feeling. Okay, number three. There are valleys too deep for an anguished person to find relief. Sometimes it seems there's no reason to go on. We run out of places to look for relief and it's then that our minds play tricks on us and says, God doesn't even care. Wrong. Do you remember Corrie ten Boom in the book The Hiding Place where she says there is no pit so deep where Jesus isn't deeper still. The good news is God's not only there, but he cares. Here's an important lesson to learn from Job. Don't expect to understand 
everything that happens when it occurs. Don't, the best thing to do is to just shrug and say, I don't know. I don't know. But we do know this. The death of God's son is not in vain. And we know that Christ died for us. We know that we will, if we believe in him, we will go on to live forever. We will have heaven and all of its blessings. We know that. It's a tough journey with a lot of struggles and a lot of shrugs with I don't know. But when we get to heaven, no more shrugs because then we will know. And suffering too helped Job get hold of some very deep truths. And as we'll soon see, he moves from mere knowledge to wisdom and spiritual perception. God is so sovereign. Our lives are therefore never, ever out of his control. Nahum 1 verse 7 says, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. God is magnificent. He's mighty. He's awesome. He's all around us. He's within us. Without him, there's no salvation. There's no promise of forgiveness. There's no absolute truth. There's no reason to persevere. And there's no hope beyond the grave. Sometimes I ask myself, how big is my God? A lot of times I'm in our home church group. Some years ago we used to to get in the houseboat and we'd go up the, the Murray. We'd have wonderful times. And the sky was just so full of stars. And I can remember often just looking up in the heavens and thinking, oh, I just wonder how big God really is. Can I ask, how big is your God? When we really get how great and awesome he is and the problems we have seem small and insignificant, in comparison, we've reached the point where God breaks his silence with Job. He doesn't give Job any answers to his questions. He doesn't apologize for being silent for so long. He doesn't even offer a hint of the discussion that happened between himself and Satan. God doesn't even acknowledge that Job's been going through some terrible struggles. When God finally speaks, he rebukes him. And that's not meant to be cruel, only to stop Job in his tracks. He needs a reminder of who's in charge. He needs to realise that God's ways and works are beyond his ability to understand. So God turns Job's attention to the vast dimensions of his creative work. Try to get into Job's thinking as God speaks. Let me just get my Bible. We find these questions that God asks Job in chapters 38 and 39 of Job. I'll read you just a few of my favourites because there's so many of them. So, then the Lord answered Job out of the storm and he said, Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you will answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Or what or what were its footings on what was its footing set? Or who laid its cornerstone? 
while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Who shut up the sea behind doors? Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. Can you bring forth the constellations in their seasons or lead out the bear with its cubs? Do you know the laws of the heavens? Who can tip over the jars of the heavens when the dust becomes hard? Who provides food for the raven when its young cry out to God and wander about for lack of food? Does the hawk take flight by your wisdom and spread his wings toward the south? Does the eagle soar at your command and build its nest? This just gives you a bit of a picture of how amazing and awesome God is. His creativity is beyond us ever being able to understand. The deepest oceans are 10.9 kilometres deep. What about the expanse of the heavens? Well, there's one space probe took 12 years to cover 643 million kilometres just in our galaxy. And that's just one, and it's thought there's hundreds of thousands more. Scientists tell us that the universe is forever expanding. It's mind-boggling. And God sets it all in motion and keeps everything moving in clockwork precision. So how did Job respond to God? With humility, relief and surrender. In Job chapter 42, verse 3 and 5, Job replies, Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. My ears have had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. I repent in dust and ashes. That's all God wanted to hear. Do you know what Job finally realised? It's all about God, not me. Job got it. So we can take hope too. Take hope that our troubles are not without purpose. After the trial, we'll come forth as pure gold. We're being refined by the test of our faith. And this test has allowed us to be reshaped and purified and humbled. When trouble comes and we're called to persevere, we have two options. We can view it as an intrusion, an outrage, or we can just use it as an opportunity to respond in obedience to God's will. It is a choice in the midst of our suffering to do what God has asked to do, us to do, whatever it is and for however long it takes. Do you know what Job finally sees? Job sees God and that's enough. He doesn't see answers. He doesn't even need any answers anymore. He's gotten a glimpse of the almighty God and that's sufficient. Job's perseverance teaches us trust and brings transformation. We rejoice for Job in his ordeal because in the long run God gave him back twice as much as he ever lost. Psalm 34 verse 19 tells us, A righteous man may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. Deuteronomy 
33 verse 27 says, The eternal God is our refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. Is there a recipe for perseverance? No, there's no recipe, but here are 10 helpful hints that I wrote down that night when God was speaking to me. Firstly, put problems in perspective. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 17 says, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. The Christian's troubles, whatever they may be, diminish in importance when compared to the eternal glory, which is far greater than all the suffering one may have to face in this life. Number two, persevere by handing things to God. Perseverance in our troubles always gives us a choice. The choice is whether we try and handle it ourselves or whether we give it to God. So often when we're confronted with our troubles, our fallen nature nature's tried to persuade us to do, handle it all ourselves without bringing it to God. It's so sad that within the lives of many Christians lie these great pools of pain that they never think of giving over to God so that he can guide the pain to some redemptive purpose. Are you holding on to pain? Do you even know that you have pain? Give it to God today. Don't wait another day. Number three, pray. Then pray some more and ask God for wisdom. Give him all your troubles, but don't forget to thank him as well. Philippians 4 verse 6 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Number four. Read and study the word of God. You'll get to know him better and he will speak to you through it. It is so much easier to trust someone that you know. I was listening to a program in the early hours of this morning, this morning, and um, they were just talking about in the 16th century how much trouble men went to to translate the Bible in our language and um, there was a lot of blood loss because of what these men were doing and even Tyndale was burnt at the stake. But I think we sometimes take it for granted how blessed we are to have God's word and how reliable it is and that we can learn so much about him and it will change our lives if we will just open it. Number five, surround yourself with encouragers. This includes seeking counsel from wise and mature Christians. Number six, know when to take a break so that you can take stock and refocus. I find that so helpful. Whenever I go to Bali, I do all the work and then I can't wait to get hold of my pile of books and my thoughts and my pens and my paper and really concentrate on God. But I think it's a good thing to do, however you can do it, is to, to get away and just, you and God, take stock and refocus. Number seven, cultivate positivity. Jesus told us in John 17 verse 33, 
I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And number eight, take one day at a time. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus promises to take care of us. In verse 34 he said, Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough troubles of its own. Number nine, Remember, as God has been in your life in the past, so he will be in the future. He'll never tempt you beyond what you can bear. And number ten, refuse to quit. Refuse to quit. Don't give up. That's what perseverance is. The book of Hebrews often encourages us to Let's go on, let's go on, let's go on. So let's leave this discussion with the words found in Hebrews 12, verse 1 to 3. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. I always like to... um, find a song that's appropriate to the message. And I had so much trouble finding one. And my girls and I, we send each other words of encouragement and scriptures and pieces of devotionals all the time. So when I was getting really discouraged, I got this one from Sarah. So after all our troubles and tribulations, just listen what happens here.
Thank you, Willie, for that word. I trust that it was encouraging uh, to everyone here, as it was to me. Um, You know how people have quotes on their fridges and things? Job didn't wallow and wail, he worshipped. Willie Stewart, write that one on your your fridges. I think that that sums sums up today's message. But um, uh, what we're going to do now is... um, we're just going to close the service, but we're not going to. It's not going to end f- for everybody. I'm going to invite the music team up. Uh, if you feel uh, this morning like you'd like to um, take further what Willie has spoken about this morning, I think uh, not only as Christians but as humans, we do this thing where we hide what's actually happening inside, uh, and Willie talked about actually talking about the pain is actually part of the healing process. And for many of us, we have secrets, we have things going on in our lives that others don't know about. Uh, and if that's you this morning, I just really encourage you to just, just to stay be, behind. I'm going to ask the musos to play and the prayer team can come down the front. And, you know, perhaps you just want to just, share with someone. One of Willie's points was to have encouragers around you. You know what? You've got encouragers around you right now. Take this moment to be encouraged, to be prayed for, to persevere in those things that you're going through and that you might find uh, something in this moment. You might not even know Jesus this morning and you might be thinking, you know what? with all the troubles and all the strife and all the things that I've got going on, what I actually first of all need is to actually know him 
and all the things that we've sung about this morning and all the things that uh, Willie's spoken of, that's what I'm desiring. And so perhaps this morning is an opportunity for you to be prayed for and to ask Jesus into your life. So I'm just going to read from Romans as our benediction and you can uh, stand and if you feel like you want to head off, that's fine. But if you just want to just stay behind and even just linger and pray or just ask for God's strength in persevering in something for you. But from Romans 15, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus so that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. May the Lord bless you uh, as you head out into this week. And, uh, yeah, trust that you would uh, know his presence. Bless you.